Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing Harry Potter houses and the Sorting Hat chat system, as well as Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials series and various other personality labels. episode two, Personality Taxonomies and Shouting About Hogwarts Houses. I'm Alex, the Ravenwren one. I'm Freya, the Sliverclaw one. And I'm Macy, the other Ravenwren one. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And those sure were a bunch of nonsense words just now. Fear not, we're going to explain what they mean because today we're talking about personality taxonomies, as I said, whatever that means. Uh, but first, what are we reading, fellow serpents? Well, I just finished reading a book which I then inflicted on you, Alex. Uh, which is The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue by Mackenzie Lee, which I had a great time with. It is a romp with a bisexual mess protagonist. And I have also just uh, started The Ringed Castle, which is book five of the Lyman books by Dorothy Dunnett. Well, with that kind of prompt, you might tempt me to join you because I too am a bisexual mess. More relevantly, I've been reading Raven Stratagem by Yoon Ha Lee, which is actually a sequel. And it's been out for a long while now, but it's one of those books that's been sitting on my shelf as like a treat for myself. And so now I'm reading it and I am ecstatically overjoyed with it and I keep trying to read it slower so I can enjoy it for longer. And as Freya mentioned, I too am reading A Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue by Mackenzie Lee and it is awesome. And uh, I have recommended it to a couple of my disaster bisexual friends. Some of my best friends are disaster bisexuals. <laughs> Listen, it's a popular demographic. Yeah, exhibit yeah, totally. A, exhibit B. And maybe, like, at this point, maybe we should have an episode about disaster bisexuals. That's something we're thinking about. But today, we're going to be talking about Hogwarts houses, personality taxonomies, demons, all sorts of things. And first of all, we need to talk about what the hell we mean when we say personality taxonomies. Macy, what are we talking about? So I guess we came to this episode because we love overanalyzing things, right? Well, yes, we I mean, do. sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, first of all, let's clarify what a personality or character taxonomy means. So taxonomy is just putting things in classifications. And so when we're talking about character taxonomies, we're really talking about any kind of system by which you sort people based on their personalities or sort characters based on their personalities. And all three of us kind of have this huge thing for a specific character taxonomy system called the Harry Potter sorting hat chats. Yes. Yes. And what is sorting hat chats? What's so special about that? Well, I guess you two are both pretty familiar and have been for since before this with the Harry Potter houses, right? I mean, I, I think we, it's safe to say that that's something that has sunk into the, the cultural subconscious, if you will. That's something that most people are familiar with, yes? All right, so they're a little bit lacking in nuance, would you say? Yes, that, that's a fair critique. They all Slytherins are evil, right? Right. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Well, so what the Sorting Hat Chats does is kind of split that out and say, hang on a second. People have motivations and people have ways of doing things. And are these houses more useful if we split them out into those two categories? So everybody has a primary house, which is kind of their moral system, their values, how they decide things. And then they have 
a secondary house, which is how they get things done, like the tools that they use when they're taking action in the world. So, for example, I am a Ravenclaw primary because I love having a logical system by which I can figure out what's right and what's wrong in the world. But I know, Freya, you have a bit of a different approach, right? Yes, so I have a Slytherin primary, which means that I suppose you could say I am partly self-centered, but also in that I prioritize myself, but also the people that I care about. So when I come to making moral decisions and deciding what should be done in any situation, I think about how will it, how to protect and how to benefit the people who are important to me. And that is the primary tenet of my moral approach, I suppose you would say. Right. I know, Alex, you have uh, the same secondary as me, right? Yeah, Macy and I are both Ravenclaw primary and Slytherin secondary. For me, every single personality test I've ever done has given me like 51% Ravenclaw and 49% (laughs) Slytherin. So with Sorting Hat Chats, what it basically comes down to, I relate very strongly to both of them. And the thing that makes the, the difference, that tips the scales, is my constructed ethical system, which is a trait of Ravenclaw House, according to Sorting Hat Chats. And that means that like, I spend a lot of time thinking about what is the right thing to do and trying to, sort of like Macy said, abide by a system. And when it comes to the other two that we haven't talked about, I think the, the primary for Hufflepuff is about essentially the greater good. So what benefits the most people and what is generally best for the world and everyone? How do you minimize harm? And for Gryffindor, it's essentially that you know in your gut what is right. You have a very strong sort of instinctual sense of what's right and wrong, rather than it being a constructed system. The way that it's broken down is that Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw are the ones that have a constructed system, and Slytherin and Gryffindor are the ones that have more of a feelings-based system. Yes. But let's not get too deep onto Sorting Hat chats too early, because I know there's a, a lot of different character taxonomies that people like to use. Yes, because we as human beings really, really like sorting ourselves and also applying <laughs> labels to ourselves and to other people. We really like sorting all sorts of things. I mean, speaking of taxonomies, there's the scientific classification, because some guy really liked putting things in boxes. Uh, thank you, Linnaeus. But there are a bunch of other more mainstream personality taxonomies, like the most mainstream one that we could think of was astrology. Yeah, right. I mean, of course, you know, your your astrological sign is based on when you were born, but there is a significant amount of personality taxonomy in there when you start getting into the more complex astrological charts, like when you start not just sun sign, but also moon sign and rising sign uh, and the other planetary influences. I am a huge astrology nerd because it's like, because it's like real life world building, you know, it's like a magic system that some people believe is true. And I think that's cool because I love fantasy. But I think people will identify more or less with their own astrological sign and their horoscopes. And it fluctuates. I think even people like myself who don't have a lot of a belief in astrology and don't really pay any more than fleeting attention to it will still read the horoscope if it comes up or read those Twitter poems around astrological signs, because if your one speaks to you, you get that little glow of, yes, this is my group. This is my people. It's very cool because it, it kind of comes to that part of yourself that really wants to belong, right? Yes. And I think that's what the personality taxonomies come down to is like that feeling of we like belonging to an in-group. Yes. And 
pulling out my uh, undergraduate psychological degree. This is very much to do with the um, psychological approach around social identity theory. Which Tell us everything about that. <laughs> okay. Well, essentially, social identity theory talks about identity stemming from our group memberships. And it doesn't say that that's the entire picture, but it says that that's a very strong way in which we form our sense of self. And so what happens when we form our identity by which members, which groups we are a member of, it means that one way in which we try and increase our self-image is by raising the status of that particular group. Mm. So by winning house points, for example, you are raising the status of the house that you belong to. But on the flip side, another way that you can raise your own self-image is by beginning to discriminate against and assign negative traits to people who are out-group. So people who are not members of this group or who are members of different groups, which is where you get rivalries from, essentially. And on a, on a different end of the scale, you get xenophobia and people being scared of the other. And it's because on one level, the more you can other an, a member of an out-group, the more you feel that your group has raised its own status. And this is, this is where your identity comes from. And as long as the group that I belong to is the good one, then I'm a good person. So that's social identity theory. And you see this happening a lot with sports teams and sports rivalries because like when your team is doing really, really well, like you feel great because their their social status has been raised by all, all their recent victories. And if your team is losing, but you still want to maintain a sense of self, you have to start putting in protective mechanisms like we are the underdog and that's a good thing. And all those people who are winning, you know, you start assigning negative traits to the winning teams in order to protect your sense of self-identity. Right. right. They, they only win because, because they're, they're cheating. cheating or, oh, jinx. <laughs> <laughs> or, or even just the supporters of that team, you know, they haven't got anything to work for. It's so easy. Their team is winning. You know, supporters of my team, we're the ones who stick with it through thick and thin. We've got longevity. Mm -hmm. We've got grit. You know, you start moving the goalposts. Haha, <laughs> sports And metaphor. I think that that's something that we definitely see in the Harry Potter canon, right? Between the houses. The whole house rivalry thing is, is very human. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Macy, did you go to a school with houses? I did not. I did. Both oh. primary school and high school. Huh. What's that like? Tell me, like, what that is like. Well, look, nobody puts a hat on your head on day one. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Um, in primary school, it... It was more to do with just, it was sports carnivals, essentially. So it was at, at sports carnivals and swimming carnivals, which are a big part of the school year. You would win points if you came first, second, third towards your house. And at the end of the year, they would announce which house had got the most points. And, you know, it was a, it was a pride thing. And you would, there was a color for your house. You would sit in your houses. You would, everyone would paint their face the color of their house and cheer for your people. And it was like having a, a sports team, essentially, but it wasn't a big deal. When I was in high school, it was a little bit more, I don't know if it was so much of an identity thing, but it was definitely a lot more of a sorting from day one, that your mm -hmm. tutoring groups, your pastoral care groups were in your house and there was a head of house and there were teachers who were tutors assigned to your house. And so you had the sports carnival, the swimming carnival. Um, we did house sports, we did house arts, and you could get house colours for um, being particularly good at something or doing something in, in the service of your house. So it was actually a part of the structure of the school. So here's a question. Did you find that the houses were, did, did they develop character? I think if you had been a little bit more involved in them than I was, you may have noticed character being vehemently anti-sports through most of my high school career. 
I kind of ignored that a little bit. Although, interestingly, I did get house colours for being the house arts captain in year 12 because I choreographed the group dance that we did for house arts. So that was my little accidental house spirit. What was the name of your house, Freya? My house was called Deacon. That's not as exciting as I was hoping it would be. <laughs> it's a little disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's a bit boring. <laughs> but I can tell you that the colours were black, white, and green. Okay, that's fine. That's not bad. I think that the really interesting difference between a lot of the sorting taxonomies we have in the real world and the ones that we see in fantasy and fiction is kind of this sense of being almost mystically sorted, right? The sense that some being or system magically knows everything about who you are and has chosen you for this particular group. Whereas in Freya's house system, it was kind of random. So there wasn't that same characterization, that same uh, in-group. Yeah, absolutely. Because it was basically an arbitrary sorting. And then it asked you to develop a sense of identity and a sense of your social identity out of an arbitrary sorting. But you're absolutely right. I think the reason there's so much of this kind of thing in fantasy and science fiction and why it appeals to us so much is because there is a sense that something is seeing you truly and telling you this is who you truly are and these are the people you truly belong with. This is kind of tying back into the smutty robot sex from uh, <laughs> our first episode where we talked about how appealing it is of like the the way that the the robot I can't believe we're talking about robots. No, no, I was going to make this exact parallel and I decided not to so I'm really glad you did. Well, here we are again. Uh back back to our old tricks. But like the the way that the robots interface like connecting with each other with ethernet cords essentially so that you can experience each other's thoughts and emotions on a subjective level. Again, like it's the appeal is that someone is seeing you truly and completely for how you really are in all your complexity that we will never actually get in real life. Yeah. And you know what this reminds me of is uh, Small Macy uh, had a favorite author because, of course, she did. And that favorite author was Anne McCaffrey because Small Macy oh, really, gosh. really, 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 really wanted a dragon. <laughs> well, Small Alex also really, 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 really wanted a dragon. So I'm right there with you. Yeah, I read Anne McCaffrey when I was like, I want to say like 11 or so, which I feel is like the right age to read Anne McCaffrey. <laughs> I think I read it when I was a little bit older, but it didn't quite click on the same level. I think maybe I was a bit too old. I think somehow it got sorted in my head in the same category as horse books, as in being, I don't know why, about humans and I mean, animals. It is kind of a horse book, I, except the, horse, the horses are dragons and have wings. But they're telepathic. That's the thing. They're, they're telepathic. And the cool thing is that they do kind of sort you. And I mean, going back and reading these books, it's one of those things where you can never go back home, right? Because there's all sorts of, of terrible stuff around sexuality and gender identity in, in the sorting. But they did kind of mm -hmm. have the taxonomy of the type of person you are dictated what color your dragon was. And it also determined your social role, didn't it? Like, the idea yes. was that the dragons that you matched to would see you, and then you would match to one that fitted the role that you would suit in that society. Am I re remembering that right? That sounds right. Yeah, that was totally it. If you got the gold dragon, then you were the ruler, kind of, of the weir. And if you got the bronze dragon, then you stood a chance of being the ruler. But if you got a blue dragon, you were subservient. See, this just sounds like a dystopia waiting to happen, honestly. It honestly does, it yeah. It does. And that brings me back to another profic sorting 
story, which is Divergent. I haven't read that. I haven't read Divergent. (laughs) You can tell us all about it. Well, okay. So maybe I hang out a little bit more in YA circles, but certainly for the first book, it is a dystopia. It's an apocalypse dystopia set in Chicago. And part of the world building is that every character is a member of kind of a house, right? And they are Mm. sorted by this uh, test based on the types of life they're going to lead. And the, you know, spoiler alert, the main character doesn't have a house. She's outside of the system. She's divergent. Is it a magical sci-fi mind reading, you know, seeing you as you are kind of test? Or is it a test of aptitude or self-report? It's it's kind of more towards the, the sci-fi, non-plausible science magic thing. But I, I find it interesting that a lot of the pieces of fiction that we have that do use these taxonomies make a note of the point of view character being slightly ill-fitted, right? So Harry Potter, when he sits under the sorting hat and the hat says to him, you could be great and Slytherin could help you with your greatness, and he rejects that. I think a lot of the protagonists that we see do have that kind of dual taxonomy. It gives us more options to play with, perhaps as writers, but also as readers. Yeah, and it puts them a little bit in liminal space. Gotta love liminal space. Gotta love (laughs) liminal space, yeah. But I think we've been going through a lot of different character taxonomies kind of quickly. Do we want to dig a little bit more into anyone in particular? I think talking a bit more about the Sorting Hat chats is useful because, as you point out, the the fact that Harry Potter, when he sits down and the house, the hat says, ooh, you could be in Slytherin, and then he says, no, 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 Gryffindor, and the hat essentially agrees or goes along or at least sees enough Gryffindor in him to change its mind is one of the reasons why the Sorting Hat Chats, I guess, holds up as, as an idea because you you like that sense of people being multifaceted or having the potential to have aspects of both houses, especially because sorting is happens at age 11. Right. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm a quite a different person now to who I was when I was 11. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I suppose this is a very English boarding school kind of thing, but the extent to which you are sorted in your house is an identity, I guess, that follows you through. And I, it seems like in Wizarding England, your identity follows you through life because even the, the grown-ups and the teachers still have this label of their house. And I, I think it would be interesting to think about whether the teachers have to have the same house that they were sorted into if they attended the school or... You would think that there would be an oversupply of Ravenclaws in the teaching <laughs> staff, surely. You know, so do they go back point. and do they get resorted? Is it to, to make up numbers? Like, how does how does that work? Because I honestly don't like the idea of going around for the rest of your life saying, "Yes, this is me." I well, when I was eleven, I was chosen as this. I'm sorry, I'm a very different person now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know that McGonagall was a Gryffindor. We know that Snape was a Slytherin. Like when they were in school, and they're also the heads of their houses now. I mean, I think um, digging too deeply into the world building consistency of Harry Potter is perhaps uh, an exercise in something. Uh, yeah, <laughs> good point, good point. <laughs> but I want to get back to something that, that Freya said about, you know, the person that I am when I'm 11, or the moment in time that I'm sorted, the moment that I step onto the hatching sands and receive my dragon, how it follows us through life or doesn't. Because I think that's a really common uh, critique of character taxonomies and personality taxonomies is you can't choose once. You have to keep choosing. 
Yeah, and I think in, in Harry Potter, the Patronus or Patronus or however you want to pronounce it actually serves almost that kind of purpose because it can change. And there's a sense in that in the, that is a, a representation of yourself in some way, but that is a part of yourself that can change as you as you change. And there's also, like, as long as we're talking about this, we might as well bring up the demons from Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials, right. which I haven't read in, like, uh, probably at least 10 years. It's more than that. Gosh, wow. God, I'm 28 this year. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, so, quiet, like, child. 15 years. I have 28 for three days, Alex. Why do you do this to me? Yeah, Alex, you are the baby. You're not allowed to complain. Listen, I'm fine with that. because and, he and here's why. I'll tell you this now. There was that one time that I read How's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones, and it said that the firstborn is fated to fa fail first and worst, and the youngest one is succeeds last and best. And I'm actually fine with it. So Thanks there. a fucking lot. Anyway, now that we have thoroughly um, displayed the personalities of your serpents to you... I think we were talking about demons. <laughs> and I think that it's a really good point uh, aligning the demons with the Patronuses in Harry Potter because they're kind of taxonomies, right? In that servants in the world of Philip Pullman will frequently have canine. Is it canine for, is it canine for soldiers? Mm -hmm. I think so. No, I think, I think Was it's, it canine for I remember, I remember servants and dogs. Yeah. Right. And so they, there's this much more nuanced revelation of character in that you can have any different kind of dog or serpent or animal at all but they're still sorted into categories and they're still set when you're a child so that it's a little bit later it's not 11 i think the demon is meant to settle at some point i think it's puberty right puberty uh, yeah. yeah roughly puberty yeah. And, and there's that same almost dystopic idea that okay so if you're if your demon does settle into some kind of dog when you are 14 does that mean that if you then attempt to show some kind of social mobility and become something that isn't a servant, is there going to be prejudice against you? Is it going to be looking at your mm -hmm. you're trying to reach upwards or find a place in the world that you're not suited to? Yeah, I would have loved to see more about that. Well, I think that that's super interesting too, because there's kind of this vulnerability that you display when your taxonomy is, is out in front of everyone. It's visible, right? Yeah, it's it's your your in group and your out group being shown to everyone. You can't hide it. You can't pretend to be something else. Yeah, everybody looks at you and sees your soul immediately. But also, if you're like Alex and I, myself and have a Slytherin secondary, maybe you don't want that to be on display. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if there are any people in that universe who fake their demons, who like carry around another animal <laughs> and like have their demon like hidden. Well, I, I could swear I've seen maybe a fanfic using, and we should talk about fanfics using these taxonomies in a minute, but I've seen a fanfic using little cases to carry insect demons in. And so you can easily fake that, right? Yeah. Yes. Like if you had, if you had a dog demon and you wanted to have a, I don't know, a spider demon, like you could just have your case and be like, oh yeah, my demon's kind of shy. Also, <laughs> this is my pet dog. <laughs> I think there is something in the world building that says that demons are larger than other an than animals are, that they are somehow distinct. But uh, I think it would be interesting to, to see that kind of game of, of trying to fake your demon. Although if you have something like an elephant, then you are just shit out of luck, really. <laughs> yeah, like, I wonder how, 
like if there's prejudice against like demons based on size as well because obviously then we get into like accessibility mm. issues because if someone has a huge demon like an elephant of course they're going to not be able to get into places and like do all the things that other people do like Unless the world is is designed dramatically differently than our and I world think this is, is now. There was a fic that I was reading a while back, um, a Welcome to Night Vale fic that I think you were reading too, right, Alex? He says he is an experimental theologian. Yes, that fic. It's amazing. But one of the things it does is it takes Philip Pullman's universe and extrapolates it 100 years into the future until you have people with bison demons trying to ride public transit. And this is where I love transformative works because they can take the world building in an existing canon and kind of build on it and twist it and say, oh, well, what would that look like today? If you had all of these demons, how would they build buses and cars and restaurants for people with demons of different sizes, uh, with different needs? How would you carry an aquatic demon? How would you bring that on an airplane? Are there laws that reflect how buildings have to be built to accommodate larger demons or aquatic demons or so forth? Yeah. And another thing that we see in fanfic that fuses with the His Dark Materials, so I think demons and His Dark Material fusions are quite a popular fusion mm-hmm. in the fanfic world, is that it allows people to look at these exceptions that we were talking about. So what happened? What could make a demon maybe not settle at the end of your childhood or what might cause a demon to regress and suddenly start changing again. And I think because there's enough room in the world building, people can come up with their own theories about what might lead to that. And Macy, you showed us a leverage yes. fanfic, which was a, a demon AU. And I really liked about that one. Well, there's a lot of a lot of really interesting sort of world building and things, examinations of the world building in that. But I liked that Sophie as the grifter had a demon that never settled. So she could actually, um, because her whole role in the con artist group is to be many different people and to be constantly changing and to be pretending people to be someone else, her demon changing allowed her to do that very well. And I think she offered to teach it to Parker, which implies a whole swathe of things about the world, that it's just, it's another power, like the witches being separable from their demons. Yeah, absolutely. And I like, personally, I quite like the idea that some kind of person, like some kind of trauma or something like that, possibly near the end of childhood, could cause a demon to regress. And I think I I wrote a very throwaway line about that in a captive prince, very short (laughs) thing that I was writing about it. But the idea that someone's demon might be close to settling and then something happens that dramatically shifts their idea of their sense of self, Mm. whether that is trauma or something else. And so we think of puberty and the teenage years, and it's it's a modern invention, but we think of it as the time of self-invention and self-coherence. And if something happens to you that dramatically shifts that, then possibly your demon would take a longer time to settle down. And I think this is one of the things that Sorting Hat Chats does really well as well, because in that system, they have this concept of burned houses, right? Yeah. Yes, tell us more about that. That's something (laughs) that I still struggle to get my head around a bit. (laughs) Macy, the Sorting Hat Chats. Oh my gosh. Okay. I I understand the burned houses because I've written a character with both a burned primary and a burned secondary. But yes, Macy, go ahead. Well, I'm going to make you talk about that later, Alex. Okay, okay. I mean, this is part of why I love the burned houses. So the idea of a burned house is when some trauma happens that alienates you from your moral center or your reason for doing things or your way of getting things done. So, for example, when 
I, I like to start a novel either with a burned character who will become unburned by the end or with an unburned character who will become burned by the end. Because I think right. that's a particularly powerful character arc. So if you have someone who is a Hufflepuff primary, who her, her main objective is to help the biggest number of people and to maintain her community ties and to kind of... Are you calling me out, Macy? No, Are you calling I'm me not, specifically I'm calling out? myself out. Alex, all right. Continue, continue. If you have somebody like that whose family then betrays her in a traumatic way, how is she supposed to put her trust in community anymore after that? And it fundamentally changes the way she relates to the world. And I think that there's a lot of scenarios you can envision depending on your own particular character's way of relating to the world. And I think that this brings us around to the other half of this episode, perhaps, which is how do we as writers and as readers use character taxonomies to analyze our characters and the characters of others? So I love this question um, because <laughs> no. as we were planning, as we were planning this episode, our, the thought occurred to me that all of this talk about personality taxonomies, um, deciding what uh, Harry Potter house your, your character is in, deciding what sort of demon they would have is all a subset of an area of literary theory called psychoanalytic literary criticism, which is a, a school of literary criticism that basically asks you to think about the characters as complex people with rich inner lives. And it is therefore the area of literary criticism that I found least objectionable when I was in college. <laughs> it sounds also possibly the closest to fandom as a whole. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Like, because that's what we're doing. We're, we're looking at these characters as complex individuals and looking at pieces of the text that imply things about them that maybe the text didn't necessarily support itself. Right, the out-of-character argument. Yeah, and, well, no, they're not behaving out-of-character. Here are all my... the sources that I've cited. Here is all the textual evidence that I have to support why I think this character would behave that way. Well, yes, and everybody brings their own ideas to it, and that's why you get fandom arguments about this is out-of-character in this fic that you've written, or even this, you know, when people have arguments about shipping... They bring their, like, vast and comprehensive knowledge and opinions on that person's character to bear when it comes to saying this is who I ship with them or this is what a ship that I think would be interesting and would like to explore. It all comes from that idea of deep analysis of character, which is why it's so great. And I think that I know, Alex, you and myself both identify as kind of character first writers and Freya, are you similarly inclined? I'm not sure. I must admit, I think when I'm starting with an, I an idea, often the idea itself probably comes first, but it's only a very, very bare bones idea because I have to graft onto that idea the perfect character to tell that story. And so I do, I'll come up with a very, very basic core concept, but then character comes next before plotting and outlining. Yeah, like of everything of yours that I've read, and God, it's all amazing, <laughs> you do write very strongly character-driven works, both your novel and your short stories and right. all of your fan fiction that I've read. It seems to be, you may start with an idea, but like from what I see looking at you and your work, I can see how important character is. 
I think it's because if you have a very flimsy idea, you can just hang a lot of character on it and nobody That's notices. very true. That is extremely <laughs> true. My secret my secret is out. And that makes sense from a fandom perspective because like you see all of these works that really the writing is terrible or the plot is terrible, but people will stick with it for years and years and years if they have a character that they absolutely love as a real person. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I have trouble with books where I can't not necessarily even like, but can't connect with or find something engaging about any of the characters. And there are amazing you know, literary novels where I I fall out a third of the way through because I just don't care what happens to anybody. Hard agree. Hard, hard agree. Yeah, I'm exactly the same way. Like, if I am reading something and I don't care about these people, then I stop reading it. And if you ask me to sort them, I'd be like, I don't care. Like, why? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> they haven't got they haven't got enough of a hook for me to, to actually care about putting them in a yeah, box. Yeah, I, I mean, I think. Part of this is like a very personal thing because I tend to like people with strong personalities because I have a very strong personality. <laughs> no. Really? Uh, well, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is something, I think this is one of the things that kind of inspired us to start this podcast, right? Was the feeling that there are definitely things that we can learn from fanfic as professional writers. And I think this is one of them, is this deep attention and this loving attention for oh, yes. character. Yeah. And when it comes to the Sorting Hat chats, if it's a system that you that makes sense to you as a, a way of building character and the things that it looks at, the how do you construct your ethical system or what ethical system do you use in your decision-making and how do you go about fulfilling your goals or taking actions that you think should be taken, those are such key and fundamental character traits that once you have those fully down, you kind of need to know those before you can set your character off into a story. Because at every point, they're going to be faced with choices. They're going to have to decide what they're going to do and why. And what they're going to do and why will come from those two very intrinsic character traits that the Sorting Hat Chats tries to look at. So Alex, do you want to talk a little bit about how then you went about building a character based on those? Before we go on a bit, I had one other thing I wanted to Mention on that part, which was a panel I went to at a convention a little while ago in which your editor, Alex, was talking a little bit about how she uses, this is Nava Wolf, how she uses the sorting hat chats as a shorthand to communicate with her writers and also as an editing tool for herself to kind of diagnose issues in the plot line of the novels that she edits, which I thought was super cool. So when you say diagnosing issues is saying that this seems out of character or this doesn't seem like something this person would do because they've been shown to be a Gryffindor primary with a Hufflepuff secondary, for example. Right. That's really interesting. Hold on. I have to think about whether or not this is secret and if so, how secret it is. We'll put it this way. At some point in the last some amount of time, I may have sent <laughs> some editor, I don't know which one, <laughs> the outline for the project that I was working on and in the title in which so-and-so burned Hufflepuff primary, burned Gryffindor secondary, unburns his primary and secondary. I don't know, something like that. And I this is, is something I wanted to ask you guys as well. So great work on everybody having the same thought at the exact same time. We're all amazing. <laughs> for me, at least... I don't always sort my characters into houses, but I do feel like it it helps me understand them, especially at the beginning of a project when I haven't spent that much time with them on the page and when I'm sort of trying to determine the trajectory of their character arc. Mm. So do you guys do that at all? Like, do you guys 
sort your own characters? I find it super helpful after they've kind of solidified, because I, I'm one of those, those writers that says, oh, the character just is alive inside my head. Um, so once they've solidified a little bit for me, I find it really useful for looking at relationships between characters. So I have a project at the moment that has a Hufflepuff primary and a Slytherin primary, and I can look at the miscommunications that causes. And so I find that that's a really useful tool for plot, because I hate plot. It sort of helps you break character down into building blocks. And then it... Yes. Because character is, like, huge and vast and complex. But having that shorthand helps... And then you can play with it like like Legos. You can rearrange it and you can say, well, I know other character relationships that had a Hufflepuff primary and a Slytherin primary. And here's kind of how their pattern of interactions went. And you can use that as a pattern for your own or, or subvert the parts that you disagreed with and so forth. I haven't quite used it like that. I haven't used it as a, a way of sort of smashing these two archetypes next to each other and seeing what would happen next. But I certainly find identifying and and hammering down a character's primary and secondary to be something that I do when they're still in the really nebulous stage. The project that I'm planning at the moment has got six main characters, so two per, two, <laughs> two per book, two main characters in three books, and I'm looking at my Scrivener file, which is the characters, and for every single one I have a little template, and part of the template is primary and secondary house. So so here we introduce you to the Ravenclaw secondary, Freya. <laughs> yes. So the secondaries, <laughs> I don't even know if we talked that much about the secondaries. I don't think we did. We should. We should do that. Okay, so a Ravenclaw secondary. Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff are the planners, essentially. So a Ravenclaw goes about, decides what they want to, what they want to do with their primary, and then they go about doing it by planning and strategizing and not improvising. I really hate improvising, and I have been inflicting my Ravenclaw secondary on these two via our Google planning document. No. Via many, many dot points. I would not call that infliction, because like every time I look at our beautiful, beautiful planning document, which is now, let me count how many pages long this is. Hold on, hold on. 14 pages long. Many. Very good. I feel... <laughs> I'm comfortable with it being 14 pages, and I'm also comfortable with it getting up into the mid-30s. So going back to secondaries, I'm just going to drag this back onto topic. So yes, uh, so a Ravenclaw, very quickly, a Ravenclaw secondary plans systematically and follows a plan. A Hufflepuff secondary works hard and persistently. So they're about sort of grinding away at something until it's done and not giving up. A Gryffindor rushes in, essentially. But very inspiringly. Gryffindors are very inspiring, I think, is part of it. It's yes, they're, they're, be, they're good leaders. Uh, they're very, but they, they don't tend to plan. They just sort of say, this is what we're doing, let's go. Whereas Slytherins, and you guys can correct me here if you want, because this is obviously your secondary, are very adaptable in their method. They will do whatever it takes to adapt to the situation at hand, but they have a much higher tolerance for improvisation. Yes, we are the pantsers of the world. Yes, I am not a pantser. I am definitely a planner. Again, like I'm 50-50 split on, on my secondary as well. I'm 50-50 split between Ravenclaw and Slytherin because like I do a lot of planning. I have like the next five years of novels both picked out and also outlined. And I never thought that I was going to be that much of a, a planner because I'm very comfortable with improvisation and and sort of making it up as I go. But at the same time, here I am with five years worth of of my career planned out. But I think that for me, at least, 
And I, I do a very similar thing with my sort of Ravenclaw model, which let's not get into models because that goes deep. Yeah, this podcast has to has to end within the hour. Yeah, if you want to know about models, go to the Sorting Hat Chats website. We will link to it. Read as much as you like. We will link it. Please, yes, read it and tell us your favorite sortings of characters because I love that stuff. Anyway, um, my point was, I think for me as a Slytherin secondary, I have a bunch of plans, but I'm not attached to them. I can swap between them and I can drop them if I have to. Yes. Yes. I have 15 plans at any given yes. moment and I can pick the one that best suits my purposes for any given situation. Whereas I like my plan to be very thorough and I like to stick to it as much as possible. And <laughs> when I was writing my, my last novel, I hit points in it where I realized I might have to not write the scene that I wanted to write. And God, I... I just whine so much at people. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, you know, I have to not write this scene. I have to add in an extra scene. What is this? And I know there are people who completely wrench their books apart, who put them back together again. And I was like, oh, I have to deviate from my plan. <laughs> but it was by one scene. By one scene, yes. But it was a solid plan. I think I, I had a, I had an ability to adjust because I could tell that the book needed it, but I was not happy. <laughs> And it can be interesting, I think, as an author, then writing characters who come at the world from a very different way to you. So as somebody who has Slytherin and Ravenclaw in them, like the book that I wrote, one of my main characters was entirely Hufflepuff, Hufflepuff primary, Hufflepuff secondary. And the other had a Slytherin primary like me, but had a Gryffindor secondary. And if you are looking for a character to create plot momentum, I highly recommend a Slytherin primary Gryffindor secondary because they yes. kind of know what they want, but they are a hot mess about getting it because they make no <laughs> plans and they just do whatever they want in that moment. It's great. You know what, Freya? I'm thinking of the current project, which I won't mention on the podcast, but you know the one that I'm talking about. And the main character is absolutely Slytherin Gryffindor, yeah. So I should mention that, yes, the the love interest slash second main character in my YA book is also Slytherin Gryffindor. There's so much fun. There's so much fun. There's so much fun. And like having just come off a project with a character with, again, burned Hufflepuff, burned Gryffindor, that person did not want to do anything. <laughs> Yes. And it's so nice. It's, I mean, and also like I personally have a pattern of all my male characters tend to be kind of passive and they want the plot to happen to them rather than going out and finding the plot. And like, I think this has things to do with like my perceptions of masculinity and like what I find interesting about people. I guess. But like all my female characters are much more willing to just like go out and be like, okay, we need to go find the plot. Let's go do that now. Let's go set something on fire and wear a cool coat while we do it. I just like setting things on fire. Well, yeah, that's a great way to find plot. Like set some shit on fire. This is a little bit off topic though. Yes. <laughs> that's fine. So there was something I had written down, uh, which was back to character vignettes and fan fiction as character vignettes mm -hmm. and how popular the harry potter fusion is in fandom because there's a lot of them right mm. oh yeah i was just gonna say like one of the things that one of the reasons that happens is because 
Harry Potter itself is such a huge pervasive fandom. Like, it is part of the cultural consciousness now. Like, I have seen characters make references to Voldemort, like, on mainstream TV shows, and everyone's supposed to just understand it, and they do. I was going to say, because it's a shorthand that everyone understands, that's why people are so happy to fling around discussion of it in fandom. So something like the Maya Briggs personality test... There are some people who understand it and are really into sorting characters by it, but everybody gets what the, the Harry Potter houses are, and so it's a really easy way to start a discussion. So I can't think of any fanfic, but certainly one, one of the fandoms that I've been most active in is, is Yuri on Ice, and there's a lot of fan art on Tumblr and mm. floating around the internet that has that very visible sorting, because all you have to do is attach the right coloured tie to the character. And I've seen, a, I've seen a lot of variation in how the main characters of that show are sorted. I think the only thing anyone can agree on is that none of the main three are Ravenclaws because it is a sports anime. That's one of the really interesting things about fandom and the fanfiction community in contrast to kind of professional writing. I think a lot of fandom is about conversation. People write fanfics for themselves and for the art of writing the story, but they also write it in conversation with the original piece of work and with other fanfics in the community. And this is true, obviously, in professional fic as well. So, for example, uh, a book we'll be talking about later, The Book of the Unnamed Midwife, is in conversation with The Handmaid's Tale. But in fandom, you can actually have comments and have a, a real-time conversation with your fans and respond a lot faster. And so shorthands that everybody knows and understands, like the Harry Potter houses, or even like the Philip Pullman demons to an extent, are a really great way to start a conversation and get into arguments, which that's why we're on the internet, right? Is for arguments. Absolutely. That's why we started this podcast is arguments. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the point of that is that, and that's why people will write and also read a lot of fan fiction with that. Because if you see, oh, demon fusion or demon AU of X fandom, even if you know nothing else about the plot, even if you know nothing else about what the story or the writing is going to be like, you are immediately curious you want to find out what this author said or sees as the most appropriate demon because you might have your own secret opinions and you want to see if it matches up. Right. Is the author wrong? Yeah. Which of course they are because my opinion is the right one. Obvious. But that means you can just leave a really nice, long, chewy comment and then the authors will get really excited and, and engage with you and you can all have long arguments about demons in comments. And yeah, that, that's fandom. That's that engagement. As, as our closing topic, who wants to explain why the podcast is called what it's called? I nominate Freya because people keep nominating me. So as some of you may have picked up already, uh, the name of our podcast, Be the Serpent, is a reference to Macbeth and the line where Lady Macbeth says, look as the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. And possibly a little bit more relevant to those of us who have Slytherin secondaries, but it is also <laughs> obviously... <laughs> A reference to the fact that we are three at least semi-Slytherin people, and possibly we are flowers as well. And I think that the, the, the exhortation to be the serpent is a little bit about be the change you want to see in the world, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Be the cunning and ambitious and not stereotyped Slytherin that you want to see. And I think that we have another episode planned sometime in the future when we're going to be talking more about Slytherin specifically. Yay. And I'm really excited about that. I think you guys are too. Yes. yes. But we do love other characters as well. We just happen to be slightly Slytherin ourselves. Well, I mean, I think it's 
it's about seeing yourself in the characters. Like, I like Slytherin characters because I see elements of myself in them and I go, ah, yes, what would I do in this situation? That's what that character is doing. Let's see how it plays out. This person is part of my in-group. Yes, exactly. Yes. And I think that's kind of the whole point of character taxonomies, bringing it back to the beginning, right? Is we want to have a point of commonality with the characters that we see on screen and we read about in our books. And I am a Gryffindor like you are is a really easy one to put your finger on. Yes. And sometimes, even though it seems silly, yeah, you wouldn't be able to say, yes, if me and this fictional character were both seated in somewhere at the age of 11 and a magic hat was put on our heads, we would get to sit at the same table. I think that's all we want, is sitting at the same table and a nice piece of treacle tart. everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. We really hope you enjoyed our chatting about character taxonomies and that it inspires you to immediately sort yourself, your friends, or any other fictional people you feel like arguing about on the internet. And spare a thought for me, outnumbered on this podcast by Slytherin secondaries, who will leap wildly between dot points, even if they're given a perfectly organized plan. On our next episode, two weeks hence, on February 28th, We'll be discussing apocalypses and post-apocalyptic stories. What is the appeal of these worlds without hot showers? Will we manage to blather on about Hope Punk again? Spoilers, probably yes. So if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe let them know. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. All our individual social media handles are listed on the show's About page, and we would love to hear from you. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com or at SerpentCast on Twitter and Tumblr. And by the way, you have a lovely smile.